Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, interest rate structures. Uh, you may have noticed, if you have been checked in uh, Cengage in the last hour or so, I've given you full credit for the exercise, the Excel exercise in Chapter 5. Whether you got full credit, you've taken it or whatever, you got full credit. And after this, you will not have any Excel exercises. You're just going to get a 10, per, uh, 10 points for every exercise after this. <coughs> Excel. These exercises have too many chances to give you wrong answers. Say you did it right, but they are saying you're wrong. So that's the end of those Excel exercises for the semester. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Booyah! I mean, I, I, for God's sake, when I get... 39 email messages saying Excel sucks. Yeah, I got I got the message. But uh, you still have to do the uh, Excel crash course, of course, but they don't make mistakes there, unlike Cengage. They seem to think that I'm off my rocker, and I've, I've been doing Excel since we used to use, long ago, we did Excel on clay tablets. You know, we had to draw the grid and, and, you know, with a stylus. And then, but I, I've been using it long enough. I know when you have coders who don't know Excel as well as they think they do. But that's that. Uh, uh, next week is midterm week. Uh, the first uh, Monday is just pure review. I tell you what I think you need to know. And since I'm writing the test, that's probably kind of good. To, good, You're creating your study guide there on, the, on that Monday class. And uh, then once I'm finished talking, then I say, it's, now it's your turn. Ask me questions. See what you, uh, and uh, I'll tell you. If you say, well, is this going to be on the test? If it's not, I'll say, no, it's not going to be on the test. Are you nuts? No. And, but if it's going to be, I'll say yes. So there's this part where I talk, and then there's a part where you get to dynamically interact with me and say, is this going to be on the test? Or can you show me how to do that problem? And I'll do that. That's the review session. Now, the test itself, you have one eight by, uh, eight by, uh, six by four note card, front and back, you can take bring to the exam. You can also bring that ratios formula sheet too uh, to the exam. N no writing on that one. But also you use Excel and if you've got templates, more power to you to get the problems done. If you use chat GPT, I have a time bomb in there to uh, catch you if you're using a chat for that kind of stuff. Don't. Uh, for one thing, I know how, I know how the AIs work. And I know how to trip them. So don't try to use a chat uh, GPT on my test. Although, don't get me wrong, I'm fully involved. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, here's the thing. Chapter 7 is not going to be on it, okay? 
it's going to be 1 through 6. It always works out that way. I always have this hope that I'll get through chapter 7, and I don't. So it won't be. It'll be 1 through 6. And, of course, the lecture material. I'm glad you asked me about that because I... Uh, yeah, I always have this uh, fantasy that I'm going to make it, and I just never do. But anyway, so next week is crunch week for the uh, midterm exam. Just come, uh, come perky, yes. Um, what can and cannot be on Excel? I, I mean, you know, I've got recipes on Excel for my really award-winning red velvet cheesecake. I don't recommend that for this test, though. But what can't be on there? I'm trying to think, what, what couldn't you put on there? Well, I mean, you could have templates, formula templates. That's fine. That's what we do these days. I mean, unless you're really old school. I mean, what were you thinking of? Just like examples or something. No, no, well, obviously, if you've got a template, there's probably an example. That's the the example is what's driving the template, and you change the numbers in it. So something like that. Well, obviously, yeah, because you can't. There's no such thing as a template that doesn't have anything already there to show you the to guide you. Yeah, so that's fine. <clears throat> I, I guess I do see what you mean by that, though. But, yeah, templates don't work like that. And I've given you a couple of templates that you've uploaded, and I've said done some in class that you can copy down for the exam and all that, too. But we'll go into the, on Monday, that will be the topic of the, uh, of the Monday's class. And so just come early and often to that because that's an important thing. I'm trying to think. Uh, is there anything else I want to talk about before we get on to this? Uh, getting on to this, first, as always, we look at the screens, and the screens are telling us not much. You notice that we've got another quiet day. It's, getting, it's really quiet right now on the street, which is kind of spooky in a way. Everyone's, there, there's this waiting to see what happens next. And I'm almost afraid that when news comes, good or bad, it's just going to cause a big surge in the market. I've seen that happen before. But for today, you had the Dow just barely down. It's not worth, that, that's just a flat day. 0.07%, that's flat. And I mean, the, the S&P 500 eked out about, uh, well, it's beginning to pick up a little bit of steam, about a quarter of a percent up. NASDAQ's up about half a percent. So there is a little, it looks like there's a little bit of positive sentiment, a little bit of bullish sentiment, but not nothing that's going to make you a fortune. Now, what I've seen, I, I think I saw it on Monday, it was flat most of the day, and then there was a surge and, at the end. And that's oftentimes just portfolio rebalancing, but it can kind of surprise you all of a sudden there's trades being made. But if you look at the volume on the 500 S&P stocks altogether, well, this is interesting because the average uh, day uh, over the past year has had 3.7 billion shares. Today, we're probably going to come in above one point. 5 billion. That's a little bit more volume than I saw than we saw on Monday and last week, which means that there's a little bit of 
testing, putting toes in the water, but certainly not jumping in uh, head first. Uh, but that, that is a little bit up. It's still extraordinarily weak volume. So I, I don't know what to say about that other than that there's still a lot of wait and see up there, uh, out there. <coughs> and then of oil, yep, it took a big surge today up to 93.77, so it broke back through that resistance at 90, and now we're on the other side of it. And it's just kind of sitting there. It had a surge until about an hour ago, and then it flattened out. So have to see where that goes. Gold took a toilet break. That's nice. Gold going up means there's sentiment that there's going to be an apocalypse or something terrible is going to happen. But gold sliding like that is good news. Silver, another metal, was pulling down too. Ten-year bond, yield was up. It's up about seven basis points, which means the price is down. So there's selling, net selling in the bond market. Supply, uh, the supply of bonds is flooding the market. That drives the price down. It's flooding the market because there's selling activity going on, pushing it into the market. So you've got bonds easing back. Good news, of course, because as we'll talk about today, interest rates are inverse to a large extent are inversely related to economic activity lower interest rates tend to spur the economy higher interest rates tend to defeat the economy well well also uh, looky there the euro is depreciating in other words the american economy is strengthening against relative to the eurozone and You've got the pound sterling, well, the British pound, rather, is depreciating as well. So, again, we're on uh, the American economy. The American dollar is appreciating against both London and, uh, and uh, Great Britain and Europe. Good news for us. More jobs, more economic activity, the whole nine yards. Whoa, look at that. Uh, Tokyo last night started out in a really bad mood and groveled back till it, by the end of the day it had just barely broken back above where it started the day. So, I mean, that's a pretty heavy uh, drop it did there at the beginning. And <coughs> London, excuse me, <coughs> is kind of taking something, sh showing something that it's done a few, a few more other days recently it's got that bouncy to it it goes up and down but generally it's in a sour mood by the end of the day it's down so i i don't know what the what the thing is over there in in uh london with why there the volatility is uncertainty that, and so there that volatility seems to be indicating that there is no consensus of what is going to happen next. And so they seem to have bulls and bears just pushing against each other up and down. So there's that. Looking at a couple of stocks just to see what's going on out there in, um, in the world. I'm going to look at a big one, Intel. Notice the trading symbol, INTC, 
Four letters. So it's a NASDAQ company. Sure enough, right there it says NASDAQ. Remember I said the NASDAQ is just hundreds of thousands of little scrappy companies. Well, this is one of those giants like Microsoft, MSFT, Amazon, AMZN, that never, when they grew up, they never left the uh, playground of the NASD, of the uh, NASDAQ. And you see that, they, they just don't want the aggravation of going through all the hoops and hurdles and continuing compliance uh, that the New York Stock Exchange puts on companies. It, it, for them, for Intel and companies like that, NYSE is just a vanity uh, exchange that they don't need to participate in. They stay where they are. There are other reasons too, but I won't get, go into. But as we can see, well, oh, uh, here's an interesting thing. Madam, is uh, Intel a safe or a risky company? Safe. Yeah, beta is below one. Why is Intel a safe company? Madam, why is Intel a safe company? Well, that's, that's just an indicator. What's the fundamental reason that in, Intel's a safe company? <laughs> what are you using right there? Oh God, that's an apple. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. What happens if all the chips in the world just go, they disappear? Well, we all go back to uh, 1950s. You see, those, those chips have become a basic, a staple. They are the, uh, the silicon equivalent of toilet paper. We have to have them. And so with a product at that level of need, you, the Intel is not going to die. It is, it has that safety pad underneath it that ensures that it will keep going unless it really screws up. And you notice that Intel pays a dividend. That's always a safety net. Even if the stock doesn't go up, at least the stupid dividend will be paid. Now I brought up Intel specifically, first of all, Notice that Intel is actually losing money. It's not unprofitable. It's got negative 23 cents per share. So it's, its total earnings are negative. Divided by the number of shares outstanding is negative. So that's why there's no PE being reported because the company's underwater. Now, here's the fun one. It's looking at the Yield, a one-year holding period yield on uh, this uh, stock. So the same old thing you do every time, you take third, uh, what the stock price is projected to be in a year, $33.11, divided by what you're going to pay for it, 34.72, end over beginning, minus one, times 100. Oh, look at that. The capital times 400 divided by uh, 400 times 100. Apologies for that. 
you will have a negative capital gain of 4.64% on this stock. So, okay, well, remember we have to add in the dividend yield to get the total picture, and the dividend yield is 1.48%. So your total capital gain plus dividend yield taken together, my ass, I did that wrong. No, I didn't. Holy cow. You will lose a, to a total holding period return uh, for one year would be negative 3.16%. This is, okay, here, here's, a, uh, here's a little bit of investment advice. Don't invest in stocks that lose money, okay? You might want to write that down. Uh, you see this? This is actually a dog of a company. This is something you would probably not want. If you were just sort of putting together a portfolio, this would be under the, uh, under the web address, thissucks.com. Uh, you're not gonna want this stock, you see it? It's losing money. Its dividend doesn't make up for the loss of, in the stock price. And, I mean, yeah, it's a safe stock. I mean, if you think, well, I guess losing money is a safe bet. You go into a casino and you think you're going to lose and you lose. Well, that's safe. But, yeah, that's, a, that's not a very good deal right there. So don't think that you always should get positive numbers. It's just whatever the calculation comes out to be, that's what it is. And in this case, you had a negative capital gain, uh, and then even with the dividend, it doesn't come back into positive territory. So I would kind of avoid this stock. Now, I'm going to show you another one here. One more, and then we go on. Now, remember I had brought this one up earlier in the semester. Berkshire Hathaway. Now, they have two classes of stock, the Baby Burks, BRK-B, and then the uh, Big Burks, the BRK-A. The BRK-Bs uh, have super voting uh, rights. So, I mean, you know, that's great. You get to have a stock and you, you control the company with, with the Big Burks. The Baby Burks are just a typical normal investment. Now, by the way, if you want to see what a, a, a Big Burke is selling for, if you don't remember, one share of a BRKA will cost you 542,435 dollars uh, uh, $435.06. Now, call me psychic, but I'm pretty sure that not one of you in this class can buy a, uh, one of these. Just can't. But, okay. Notice that the big Burks don't pay a dividend. They don't. And that's okay because if you've got 
enough money to buy Burke eggs, you're not in need of a dividend. Oh, I can't. I, I hope I get a dividend because I, I, I can't afford my dinner tonight after you've paid more than half a million dollars per share. No, they don't have to pay a dividend to this class of investors. So now let's just look at their holding period return. All it'll be is just the uh, capital gain. The ending, 593.296.00 divided by the beginning, 542. 422.19 minus 1 and then times the result by 100. 9.38%. Yeah, that's decent. You know, it's, it, it's a relatively safe investment at beta point, uh, 0.67. The PE ratio is a little on the low side, so it's got upside potential. Yeah, that's fine. So, here's your investment. I expect every one of you to grab a couple of those uh, big Burks as soon as class is over. Okay, now let's come back down to come down to planet Earth and let's look at the BRKBs, the baby Burks. It's just a normal investment. They're a little on the pricey side, a little on the pricey side. Doesn't pay a dividend though. Now I'm a little, that's a little weird. So geez, look at that EPS earnings per share: thirty-nine dollars and thirty-nine cents per share. That is really attractive. And low PE ratio. Um, beta is low. Yeah, this is a decent. Uh, this is a decent investment. Let's look at the capital gain. Okay, you've got your capital gain which is um, 390.87 divided by what you'd pay for it today, 357.51 minus 1 times 100. Wow, what did I do wrong there? I did something wrong there. Let's try that one more time. 396.87, 396.87 divided by 357.44 minus 1 times 100. There you go. It's a decent return. 11%. You don't have any dividend to worry about. But if you just invest in baby Burks uh, with a one year holding period, they're projecting that you'll make a little over 11%. You know, that's not shabby. And it gives you the right to say that you are, you know, a business associate of Warren Buffett or something like that. Yeah, I own a little bit of Warren's company. He's Warren, you know, to me, he's Mr. Buffett to you losers. But you can do that. But I mean, it's not spectacular, really. I've shown you some investments that are just knocked dead better. So, you know, though, however, at the same time, Berkshire Hathaway is not going to go out of business and it's making a whopping EPS. And I see with that low PE ratio, a good amount of 
upside potential in the price. So there's that. Now I'm going to go on and talk about interest rates here for a while. I'm going to start out with a, an example here. A pro we're looking at a group of projects and their return on investment. Say project A has an ROI of 12.25%. Project B has an RO return on investment of 7.62%. Project C has a return on investment of 9.18%. And Project D has a return on investment of 14.06%. We're trying to decide what projects we would take on. So suppose that the prevailing interest rate environment was such that your weighted average cost of capital, what it cost you in terms of funds to jump into a project, let's say that that is 6.00%. Well, I mean, if it costs, your cost of capital is 6% and your project A is going to pull you 12.25%, you're going to say, yes, that's, it's profitable. The return is greater than the cost of the capital. Notice, by the way, that in finance, the word cost Unlike in accounting, cost for us is almost always going to be expressed as a percent, uh, uh, not as a dollar amount. So anyway, well, okay, project B. Well, it's going to cost us 6% for money. This project pulls in 7.62%, so that one's a yes. The same goes for Project C, 6%, it's gonna cost us. The project pulls 9.18%, so that one's a yes too. And then finally, Project D, oh hell yeah, costs us 6% for the funds, we get 14.06 return. Yeah, that's good. But then, this is scenario one. Let's look at scenario two, where the weighted average cost of capital, the prevailing interest rate environment has elevated. So the weighted average cost of capital is 8.00%. In this scenario, A is still a, still a go because 
8% and I can get 12 and a half, 12 uh, and a quarter percent? Sure. But project B, no. It's going to cost me 8% to jump in and I'm going to get only 7.62%? No. C is still good because it costs 8% and out of C I'm going to get 9.18% and D is still good. Now we proceed on with this. Suppose in scenario three, the weighted average cost of capital has gone up to 10.50%. Well, A is still good, 10%. I get 12 and a quarter, sure. B is dead on arrival. 10.5% it cost me to earn 7.62%? No. Uh, C, it cost me 10.5% and I get only 9.18%? Absolutely not. And of course, D, <laughs> a whopping 14.06% return for money that costs 10.5%? Yes. Let's look at scenario four. Scenario four, the weighted average cost of capital is 13.75%. A falls down. Cost me 13 13.3% and I'm going to make only 12 and a quarter percent. No. B, no, absolutely not. 13.75% money to make 7.62%, no. C, same thing, 13.75%, it'll cost me to get only 9.18%, no. D is the only one that survives. Look what's happening. This is how it actually works. This is simplified, but the simple story is just how it works in an economy. As the cost of capital, interest rates go up, fewer projects are accepted by companies. That's only half of the story. It gets even worse. But right there, all those projects that were going to create jobs, all those projects that were going to bring stuff to the market for businesses or consumers, no, they are gone. As the interest rates go up, the actual business activity of a nation contracts. That's why the markets pee themselves when the Fed raises the interest rates. It's that simple. Now, the next part of this, there's another subtler thing going on. Remember I keep sneaking in that famous axiom, the greater the risk, the greater the expected return. Look what this is doing. As interest rates are going up, companies are being driven away from the lower return, lower risk projects. Those lower returns on investment are associated with lower risk of the project. As the interest rates go up, 
those projects are get, start getting rejected. And as interest rates go up more, more of the safe projects get rejected. It's driving companies towards slow, slowly or rapidly reconfiguring their investment portfolio of projects toward greater risk. And as such, they'll be backing themselves into higher and higher risk projects, and guess what? That's where you begin to meet doom. That's why more companies go bankrupt. It's because they are forced to take on higher and higher risk projects because those are the only ones that give returns that make it worth it to invest. And as they take on those riskier projects, there is a greater probability that those projects will fail and the companies will go belly up. That's why the, the other reason the economy contracts is because companies are running toward risk and running toward risk means you're running toward the fire of bankruptcy. So there you go. That's the whole background of why interest rates matter and why <clears throat> we want a lower interest rate environment. We want the conditions so that interest rates can be low. There is a problem, though, with interest rates that get low. One of the ways that interest rates can go down is if the supply of money increases. Because you increase the supply of money, the price of money, interest rates, falls. So, a president, a Congress, want the Federal Reserve to print and print and print money because that will bring down interest rates. And they'll all go home heroes. The economy's boosted and all that. There's only one problem with that. The only cause of inflation, regardless of what you've heard from pop culture or the popular media, the only cause of inflation is more money being printed than the economy can absorb by growth. In other words, if you print money, if the economy is growing at 2% and you grow the money supply at 3%, you will create inflation. That's how it works. The idea, well, inflation is caused by the, these unions jacking up their wages. Bullshit. Or companies are just ripping people off. That's what inflation is. We just make them stop ripping off customers and the inflation will go away. Bullshit. Those are not the factors. They are just the consequence of it. The underlying factor is just printing too much money, which we did. We've done it over and over again, and then we have to claw back all of that liquidity overhang, and that's what causes interest rates to go up. That's what throws us into the recession. That is the boom-bust cycle. If you follow that, you're in good shape. Listen to the podcast. You'll hear it a couple of times. But it, it's relatively simple. But you can have all of these talking heads and these amateurs on the right and the left giving their theories and their, their uh, explanations. Don't listen to it. It's straight up. L let me give you what, uh, just very briefly. Um, and I'll go through a, 
a couple of examples in the history from the middle of the 20th century. The most recent one, though, however, happened in your lifetimes. Essentially, we had a fairly stable money growth policy. Grow the money supply at the real growth rate of the economy, like that. That would keep inflation quite low. It's okay to have a little tiny bit of inflation. But what happened was that we were beginning to slide toward a recession in the late 2010s. The president put extraordinary pressure on the Federal Reserve to stop that by printing lots of money to juice the economy. So they did. Well, that would be the first the, the first thing that would lead to an inflation later. But then the second part came in. Usually the Fed, okay, we'll juice the economy a little bit and then we'll quickly pull that liquidity back in when the economy is not f fumbling. Well, it didn't happen this time because we had that nasty uh, virus with the nickname Rona. Well, uh, corona, COVID-19, accurately, COV-SARS-2, uh, it just, it just it froze up the economy, the lockdown, and then the government started printing checks to give to people, just hand out money for God's sake. And it gave these loans to businesses, and a lot of businesses never paid them back. They got forgiveness for them. So there was this second round of printing money by the Fed, and it was a doozy. Well, you had the juicing in 2019, 2018, and then you had the extra juicing in 21, 22. And so guess what? We have an inflation. Yes, a surprise. There's no mystery to it what created it. It was done by the uh, Federal Reserve following the needs of the federal government to keep the economy alive. And so now we have the Fed clawing back that liquidity, pulling all that extra money back in and shredding it, and supply of money going down, interest rates go up. Well, spank me Jesus, that's exactly what is happening. The Fed has clawed back the uh, liquidity. They're, right now, they, they figure that they've probably done it about enough. And that's why we're not too worried about the Fed jacking interest rates up anymore by increasing, by decreasing the money supply. We, the Fed's uh, and some in, uh, and a lot of private economists are still a little concerned that the embers of inflation are still boiling out there. So there probably will be one more jack up, and so but we're it won't happen until the economy is in good enough shape so that that uptick in interest rates won't cause a contraction of business. That, that's what the theory is. Is that what's going to happen? It'll probably work. I, I mean, the economy is getting strong enough that down the road the Fed can put interest rates up one more time just to draw back in any loose money 
that is excessive, that any liquidity overhang that's still out there. But we actually, we did it damn well this time. The Fed can be criticized horribly, ex uh, extraordinarily for some of its actions in earlier uh, cycles like this. Uh, the end of the 1970s, the, uh, oh God, the, um, well, the one, there was one that's kind of poorly known. But yeah, this time we did it, the Fed actually did it pretty well. The one that was really very poorly known was in the, uh, in the uh, months and year right before the uh, near apocalypse of 2008. I'll talk to you about that later in the course. Turn you into a real conspiracy theorist after you see that one. But anyway, enough of that. Interest rates. Well, there is no such thing as the interest rate. As a matter of fact, I was doing these whacks. You'll see what that is all about later. It's math, but Excel makes it pretty painless math. But that's a weighted average cost of capital. Every company has its own whack. Uh, <coughs> Uh, it's based upon uh, a number of factors, but it, that whack can be for some companies as low as 5%, for other companies as high as 18%. But that's an interest rate. And there are interest rates that you face. Uh, you've got an interest rate on that million dollars in certificates of deposits that you've got at the bank, right? Okay, you've got an interest rate that you pay on that car loan. You really overpaid for that car, but I'm not saying that. Okay, you got an interest rate on that luxurious house you have on the outskirts of Toledo. Me, I've got an interest rate on my double wide trailer in downtown Decatur. There are interest rates and there are interest rates. There's an interest rate on your student loan. There's an interest rate on your credit card. There's an interest rate on, uh, they're just all over the place. What is this all about? Is there an interest rate? No. But we know how they, go, how they put together to create all the different ones. First things first. I'm going to, there is something called the nominal interest rate. R sub NOM. And of course, if it's a really delicious interest rate, then it's R sub nom nom. Oh God, that one didn't go over. <laughs> the hell was this class? No respect. <laughs> Rough crowd. Okay, anyway. R, R that is actually the real interest rate plus the inflation premium. You never see real interest rates. The, one, the first one that you would see is the nominal interest rate. We know that it, is comp uh, that it has two pieces to it, but they are not, you have to use some fancy statistical analysis methods to peel them apart from each other. But I should make a note here. This is the real interest rate.
But this is not really IP. It's the expected inflation premium. There is a world of difference between inflation and expected inflation. You're walking across the street, okay, here on campus. Now, some one of those maniacs who has no regard for humanity whatsoever. Yes, I'm talking about skateboarders. <laughs> Hits you. <laughs> and you get out. You call a few names that start with mother, and you move on. Okay? That's inflation. You walk across that same street, and an 18 wheeler. <laughs> And you are goo on the asphalt. Okay? They call it asphalt because you land your butt on it and then your ass has a fault. God, I can't get anything out of you people. Really? Okay, fine. Let me, let me explain it to you. In expected inflation. Expected is the monster. Because you can actually bring down inflation, but expected inflation lingers. It just keeps going for a while. Because at first, businesses and workers don't believe that the lowering inflation is actually going to stay. I'll, I'll take an example. You, madam. I decide I'm going to give you a job. I mean, I, yeah, I, you know, I work full time for me, and I'll pay you a good salary, hundred dollars a week. I'm a giver. Okay, you work for a year for me, and then you come in for your annual review. And I say, well, you've done a damn fine job. I'm really impressed with you. You know, uh, I, I, I think I, I'll give you. I see that inflation, the consumer price index was 2% for this, for this past year. So I'm going to give you a 2% increase. Now get the hell back to work. Okay. Well, you come in for your interview, next annual interview, a year later, well, you're still doing good for us. I mean, I'm really impressed. I see that inflation last year was, this uh, CPI was up 4%, so I'm gonna give you a 4% increase. Now, get back to work. Next year, you come in and to me, and I say, well, still doing a good job. I see that 6% was the inflation last year, so I'm going to give you a 6% increase. Now get back, and you cut me off. You say, wait a minute there, fat boy. I don't want 6%. I want 8%. What the hell do you mean by that? Do you understand what's been going on? You see how interest rates went up, but I gave you your compensation after you had been burned by the 
And I gave you the 4% after you had been burned by the 4%. Well, here's the thing. You come in that next time, you don't want another session where you get what already happened. You want what you expect to happen to your purchasing power. That's how businesses work. That's how unions work. That's how it happens. Your interest rates on loans, they have nothing to do with what inflation has been. They need to put in what inflation is expected to be over the life of your loan. Because they are going to lose money if their expectations are not met. That's why this is not actually the inflation premium in that is added to the real interest rate it is the expected inflation premium that's where we get into the problem the fed pulls back we've got it under control we we're okay everyone no more wage increases no more price increases it's all good now and it's still the prices go up uh, we're not stupid in business we're not going to believe the Fed until we see it with our own eyes and we can adjust our expectations. Because right now, the expectation is still there that inflation is raging. And it will take a while. You, madam, for example. I don't want you to breathe. Thanks. So I'm going to throttle you. You think I'm going to let go? No. Because I know you're resilient. I take my hands off. Turns out you are one of those zombie things. And you have to really, you know, the double tap. Zombie land. I'm surprised a lot of people don't know about double tap and, you know, cardio anymore. Survival skills are just going to hell. Okay, but you understand what's going on. Is the Fed has to keep the pressure on after the uh, fire is out. That's why, even though we, we've got inflation pretty much under control, the Fed's saying, don't get your hopes up. We're going to keep this going until you believe that inflation is going down. It's not there. Because right now, we still see prices going up. That's the expectation. I'm doing it in my own work. Yeah, inflation is back under control. But when the, uh, my last show of the season, I'm bringing my prices up 10% across the board on my work for the show. Simply because I don't really believe the Fed. I do, but you know, I have trust issues. They go back long, they go back a long ways. But that's just how it works. And so this gives you a unique insight the insight of knowledge, of education, on what is going on behind the curtain. The vast majority of people just see what's in front of them. They listen to one uh, news network or a blog or a candidate. It's, it's not that complicated, but it is certainly not something that most people understand and know about. So that's the basis. Now right here, 
this thing right here. The nominal, the real rate of return plus that expected inflation premium. This is called the risk-free rate. There are no risk factors in it. Well, you could say inflation is kind of a risk factor, but we don't call it that. Now, this would be the interest rate that you would earn, the nominal rate you would earn on a riskless security. If there were no risk, this is essentially just the pure opportunity cost of foregone consumption. You borrow $20 from me for a year. I don't get to use that $20 to buy me a cheeseburger. I have to be rewarded for not having my cheeseburger now. And I'm hungry. Matter of fact, I'm getting to the point where I'm hungry. Okay? You see, that, that, but there's, it's riskless. It's just, this would be the lowest interest rate you could probably see. And I'm going to show you this interest rate, or at least a proxy for it. And you're going to say, well, I see lower interest rates. But this really is the lowest, and I'll explain that in a minute here. Now, where could you get the risk-free rate on an, on an investment? Where in the world could something like that happen? Let me pull up. And they keep clearing out my out bookmarks out here so I'll have to do a Google search to get my treasuries right here the rate on a short term T-bill treasury bill is considered to be approximately risk-free simply because the government will pay you what it owes you. You let the government money, it'll pay it back. Guaranteed. No, the government isn't going to default on anything. We will pay off our borrowings. There's no risk involved. First of all, if we had to, if we didn't have the money to pay you back for a loan you made to the government, well, the government would simply you know, tax someone and get the money for you. If that doesn't work, the Fed will just print some money to give to you. And if that doesn't work, we'll do our old-fashioned thing. We'll just make up an excuse to attack some country and liquidate its assets so that we can pay you. American capitalism works, guys. Gosh darn it. Okay, look here. The one that is traditionally considered the classic Arsabeth. And we will use this in a lot of formulas. We use it, as a matter of fact, almost every day I'm using it teaching other finance courses, this risk-free rate. It has sort of a special place in the, the physics of finance. We use the one year. 
Now notice that that one year treasury yield started September 1st at 5.36%. That's pretty, that's historically really high. I mean, wait, let me, let me show you something. Let me go back to 2019. Watch the interest rates in 2019. <laughs> Do you see that? The one year, 2.60%. Yeah, you can see, you can just visually see month to month, year to year, the Fed letting money flow into the economy and pulling it back, causing interest rates as it flows in to go down, and as they claw it back, the interest rates go up. That's just how it is. Now let me go back to where I was just a minute ago. Okay, now we're in September of 2023. See how the interest rate was still climbing, and then it, it began to stabilize. Pushed up a little more, but notice that it is now getting into more of a stable period. Now, if I show this to you in October, if I show it to you in November, it will probably be going down a little bit as the Fed lets up and lets more money flow into the economy. Nothing, nothing mysterious about it. The Fed has finished pretty much. Let me go back to um, uh, 2023. Look at starting in January. You notice the interest rates were pushing upward as the Fed put the throttle on the economy, pulled in the money supply, and therefore, as the supply of money went down, the price of money, the risk-free rate, went up. And then it stabilized it, and then it had to do one more push. See there, doing that last push to drain the last of that liquid liquidity overhang out, and then you notice that it has been bouncing around somewhat for about a month now, a little less than a month. This is, we're in the transition phase from contractionary monetary policy to stable monetary policy. Probably in 2024, we will go back to a little bit more of an expansionary monetary policy and these interest rates will start to fall. But for a lot of it, the problem is shaking out that damned expected inflation premium. Just getting it out of there because it's still in there. And it's going to take a while more before businesses and unions and others start to ease off. I'm not easing off. I told you in my own business, I'm not backing off. Other companies aren't backing off. They're still jacking up their prices. We need more evidence that it's over before we're going to go back to the way it was. Okay. So there's the risk-free rate. Now, the next thing is that I'm going to write the general form of an interest rate. An interest rate. It could be a loan, a car loan, a home loan, uh, it could be a credit card, whatever. It's going to be the risk-free rate, which I showed you over there. That's the substrate. 
the interest rates sit on that. But then it has what we call a risk premium. It has a risk premium. This has three parts to it. And as those parts, they can be bigger individually, they can be bigger or smaller. That's why different interest rates are different numbers, is because of this risk premium. It has these three parts. There is a default premium. This is an extra bit of juice in case the loan doesn't pay off. So for example, on a treasury instrument, R sub D would be virtually zero. It will pay. But on a, oh, let's, let's try one. A home loan, there's going to be a default premium people don't pay it off. But it's not going to be very significant simply because there's an asset backing it. So even if you default, the bank will simply take your house away from you and liquidate it. So the default premium is there, but it's not particularly significant. Take a car loan. Similarly, it's an asset-backed loan. So the default premium isn't going to be terrible, but it's going to be worse than on a home loan because of the old adage that the car loses value as soon as, as soon as it's driven off the lot. So even if you quit paying on your car loan, they can get it back and that'll make good on part of the loan, but it has lost some of its asset value just because it was taken off the lot and driven. So the default premium would be somewhat higher on a car loan. Let's try a credit card. A credit card is a freaking nightmare because it is not asset backed and the default rate on credit cards is stupidly high. So the default premium, one of the reasons that a credit card APR is so stupidly high is simply because of the default premium. It is stupidly high because a lot of people default, so the banks have to charge a lot more interest to make up for that loss from all the people who don't pay. <coughs> Got the idea? The default premium actually kind of drives what, you're in, what interest rate you're going to see for a lot of loans. It's going to drive it. Now, there's another one here. I'm, I've, I usually do this in a different order, but I'm going to try to follow how the book shows them. The book shows the next one as being the liquidity premium. Let me explain. The liquidity premium, you see... Most, I'll bet most people don't know this. Probably you don't know it. You come to me for a loan, a house loan. 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Okay, great. Okay, 
we sign the papers and you go on your way. Lol, I've got a loan. And I, the banker, say, lol, I don't got a loan. Because I guarantee you that within a matter of hours, if not qu more quickly, I am going to sell that loan to this insanely huge thing called the secondary mortgage market. To Ginny Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, whatever you want, whatever it is. I will take your loan and all the other ones that I've done that day, and I will put them into a bundle and I'll, I'll sell them. Yes? I have a question. Yes. Um, in your hypothetical, are you, is it a big loan or a little loan? It would be, oh, <sighs> little loans. You mean like $500, are you think? Yeah, okay, those actually, they have hardly any default premium. That, that money market, they just kind of, I, I don't even mention them because, in fact, interestingly enough, in my short-term uh, cash management class, the interest rates I use are the risk-free rate all the time because they're so tiny. These things are so tiny that the rate is that for most businesses that are just doing quick loans for liquidity purposes in their current assets. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I didn't even think about that, how that's integrated to this class. We always use, for short-term cash management, well, what's the risk-free rate? Matter of fact, I pulled out, for an example today, 5.5% was, was for the present value of money that was going to come to them in 30 days because I was using the risk-free rate because these are almost irrelevant in those kinds of loans. Kind of an interesting thing. But when you get to the big dogs, those giant loans. Yeah, uh, the, the ones, the big loans, house loan, car loan. Then all of this suddenly comes out of the woodwork. It's almost like the, a force of nature that doesn't work in the short term suddenly becomes the dominant thing in the, in the big loans in the long run. Going to the effect of a coin machine. Oh, <laughs> Those are hilarious. The one where I put in 100 pennies and I get back 90 cents or so. Oh. Like a, a corner where you put in the bouncy ball and then you like, I mean, no, no, you put in the, put in the corner and you get off the bouncy ball. Yes. I, I play those every time I go to Pizza Ranch. But, <laughs> but yeah, again, for small amounts of money, that doesn't apply. Interestingly enough, just very quickly, there's an arbitrage play where people use many, many tiny transactions and each one has so little of this in it that it doesn't show up until they go to play the whole mass and then it shows up and they can make a little bit of profit that way. Kind of hard to explain, I'll show it to you later. It's actually a famous thing in currency exchange. The liquidity premium. If you can get rid of a loan right away, there's no liquidity premium. If you're stuck with a loan, there's gonna be a higher liquidity premium. Mortgage loans are highly liquid. We, the banks just get rid of those right away. Well, you say, oh, well, I still make my payments to the bank. No, the bank has an agreement so that they will service, you know, take the money and all that, but they don't own the loan anymore. Not after a few hours, it's gone. In fact, I saw one last year, someone asked me to uh, 
uh, well, uh, to go to a loan, uh, a closing on a house. The strangest thing was that in that one, the bank didn't even give the loan. It was actually, they were representing the secondary mortgage market to just take care of the loan. It didn't even go to their hands. Even though the people who bought the house, they thought, well, we got our loan from the bank. No, you didn't. Those papers you signed were with an SM, uh, SMM, a secondary mortgage market. That one was new to me. I didn't know that was happening. But then, things like car loans. A bank makes a car loan to you, they're stuck with it because there's no quick way to dump that onto someone else. They can't get rid of it. When you uh, lend the government money, it is so liquid that you can literally push a button, sell, and in a blink of an eye, you've sold it. That's perfect liquidity virtual. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Venmo, PayPal, all those are highly liquid. So it, it just happens in the flat. In fact, in, my, in the case of my company, I use PayPal. And when the company makes a loan, that loan is, I literally don't make the loan. People think I do, but literally, I pass it off to PayPal in the blink of an eye. Perfect liquidity. The same thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, the last one. The maturity premium. Now, there is a theory called expectations. The book mentions it. That says this doesn't exist. Well, I don't want to disrespect them, but they're full of shit. This one's real. Here's what happens. I want to show you something. The longer a loan is, the more likely it is that interest rates are not going to stay what they were when the loan was made. Let me try this. Okay. You, sir, you borrow for a house at 6% from me. So I am the banker, or I'm the lender, and I figure I'm going to get 6% on my loan for the next 30 years. Okay, great. What happens if interest rates go to 3%? You're going to refi. You're going to get a loan at 3% and pay me off, and all of a sudden, I'm holding the bag. I thought I was going to get 6% for 30 years. Now I'm going to have to relend it at 3%. So if interest rates go down, then I'm screwed. On the other hand, most people sell their flip a house in seven years. That's about it. But you got a 6% loan. What happens if interest rates go to 12%? You're not going to sell that house and buy another one because you'd have to pay 12%. You're going to hold on to that loan, and I'm going to be sitting there saying, uh, I, I could use that money back because I can lend it out at 12%. You're not going to do it. You're going to keep that house. Even though your family has grown past that house, you now, you didn't have any kids when you got the loan. Now you've got eight kids and you've got your brother-in-law living in the attic. You need a bigger house, but you're not going to give it up. 6%, you're going to stick to it. So in other words, interest rates going either way. 
And the longer the loan is, the more likely interest rates are going to go some way. So this maturity premium is why interest rates on longer loans are higher than interest rates on shorter loans. That's why if you get a 30-year loan on a house, it will have a higher interest rate than if you get a 25-year loan. That's why the interest rate on a car loan that's seven years long will be higher than the interest rate on a loan that is five years. It's this maturity premium. The longer the loan, the higher the premium gets. That's it for today. We'll see you next week. I thank you.